0: Bye. Uh, Hello, welcome to The Movies That Made Me. I'm Luke Sorber hosting this podcast. I will introduce my guests, who I am very lucky to have with me uh, for this recording uh, in a couple of minutes. The theme, though, is um, creative artists, movies about people who make art. There are countless films uh, about creative artists. The first feature-length talkie was about a fictional artist. Uh, It was The Jazz Singer. Uh, played by uh, Al Jolson. More recently, um, I've been to the cinema to see Respect about the real-life Aretha Franklin. And there've been other prestigious musical biopics, The United States versus Billie Holiday, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Rocketman, Bohemian Rhapsody, all of which have proved very popular. Uh, La La Land almost won an Oscar, but lost out to Moonlight. Uh, In a bizarre uh, Oscars event, playwrights have featured in Oscar winning movies such as Shakespeare in Love and in the great me and Orson Welles, which is about Orson Welles when he directed plays and screenwriters have featured in movies on Netflix like Mank with Gary Oldman. Two of my favorite movies about theater are actually about school plays, which is where I started out. Get Over It with Kirsten Dunst and Hunky Dory with Minnie Driver. As a former actress, who becomes a teacher and puts on a production of The Tempest, but featuring music by David Bowie. And now I can segue into saying he appears in fictional form in Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine. Other fictional musicians, uh, Spinal Tap, The Commitments, and Dream Girls. We've got novelists in movies like Collect with Kira Knightley, or made up ones in Stephen King's The Secret Window, and we'll mention Stephen King uh, later. Poets in Bright Star uh, and in Poetic Justice, which stars um, Janet Jackson, and there's a little link to later on there. We have dancers in Fame and in The Company, choreographers in Honey, hip hop artists in Straight Out of Compton and Eight Mile. We have painters in basket, Mr. Turner, Frida and Lust for Life. And these are just the films that I can remember. Filmmakers in Eight and a Half, Hitchcock and... Uh, One of my favourites, my name is Dolomite. Uh, Struggling actors desperate for success are the protagonists in two 1987 movies with Nail and I and Hollywood Shuffle. Uh, And yet they could not be set in places and around people further apart than the Brits in the uh, Lake District and the Black American Experience in Los Angeles. Creative people are often driven uh, to the point of obsession. And I think of movies like The Red Shoes or recently, The Disaster Artist. And one of my choices will reflect that. And creativity is, of course, often not about the solo, but a collaboration. And that's where movies like Military Wives or Community Theater in Waiting for Guffman uh, become relevant. And my second choice will reflect that. But my choices are really add-ons uh, we're going to focus on the choices uh, of my guests, uh, two wonderful, uh, creative, and very talented people. Uh, with me are filmmaker and comedian Ty Campbell and actress, dramatist, and recently TV presenter and all-round good egg Suki Webster. So, welcome to both of you.
1: Thank you, and thank you for calling me a good egg.
2: <laughs> hey, how's it going? Uh, you
0: are, you are, you're, you're both good eggs. You're both good eggs. Uh, uh, Yeah, I'm very excited, um, as you can can probably hear. So this, it was great fun picking this theme. And I thought, as well as finding out movies that uh, mean something to you in this area, that we would also use this as an opportunity to talk about your creativity and how perhaps what you've related to in the movies you watch says something about how you work or why you work or or maybe, you know, pitfalls you want to avoid and the reason i'm saying that one is because the first movie we're going to look at is sunset boulevard that suki has picked and uh i'm going to ask you to do the two minute uh, two minute summary uh it's 1950 it's billy wilder who by the way uh, was a guest at my dad's restaurant in uh, mm. in late years really
1: oh yes he was wow. yeah cool yeah. so did my you dad meet rang me
0: up and read the name off the american express card oh. and it wasn't the posh restaurant either uh What's so, my restaurant so uh Renato's Italian restaurant in Kensington I just have must have been in the in the area and uh anyway that's I so I have lots of these stories where I where someone I know meets someone I I idolize but it's never me so I didn't actually meet Billy Wilder but my dad did I've got I've got a
2: whole bunch of these um that's cool I met I bumped into Morgan Freeman once for real yeah yeah
0: did, was it, could you do a Morgan Freeman? Was it difficult not to break into like an impersonation when you meet the real person?
2: Uh, I think that was probably one of the few times I've been properly starstruck. So yeah, I didn't want to be like, hey, I can do you. I was like, nah, like, uh, my name is Ty Campbell. Wow. <laughs> I'm a big fan.
0: <laughs> I, I'm always starstruck. I I am a complete fanboy. And even when, on the occasion when I've, I've worked with, biggish names, I am still can't believe I'm there. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> I've only been yeah. starstruck a couple of times, but when I have, I, I once met Al Pacino, and wow. I wasn't expecting to, so a friend of mine <laughs> was doing a show in the West End, and suddenly Al Pacino comes into the dressing room, and my friend is getting changed, so I'm in like a, a six foot by eight foot space with Al Pacino, and I literally went speechless. And then later, my friend came out, and Al Pacino saying, oh, you had them in the palm of your hand. You had them in the palm of your hand. And I went, and "He went. I should stop. I should stop. And I said, no, please keep going, because I will be dining out on this for years to come. And he hmm. looked at me, paused, looked back and carried on like I didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I just blew it. I, I made stupid conversation with Al Pacino. Hey-ho. Okay.
0: Uh, you haven't met Gloria Swanson. But she is the lead in Sunset Boulevard. She plays Norma Desmond. Do you want to say a couple of things about the movie before why you chose this, Suki?
1: Sure. And I'm not going to tell you the whole plot because I hope if anybody hasn't seen it, they will see it. Uh, So I don't want to give a spoiler. So it's a classic movie. It's uh, voted in the top 10 of American movies by several movie magazines, movie organisations, So if you haven't seen it, uh, trust me, you're in for a treat. So as uh, Luke said, it is directed by Billy Wilder and co-written by him and uh, Brackett, whose name I think is Charles uh, Brackett. And Billy Wilder also wrote hits such as uh, Seven Year Itch and Double Indemnity. So as a As a writer-director, for me, he's absolutely one of the top people up there. I just think his work is stunning. And from all accounts, he was a very funny, very sweet, very uh, lovely man. Um, And it's about a fading silent movie star played by Gloria Swanson, who was a fading, silent movie star. She's only 51 when she does the movie, but the implication is that she's older and over the hill because, uh, as is still the case, sadly, women in the movies have a sell-by date by the time they're about 30. So she had had this massive career in the 20s, um, and she's playing a woman that, like her, had had a massive career in the very early years of cinema. William Holder uh, plays a character who is on the run, accidentally goes into her driveway and ends up becoming inculcated in her world. So he moves into her huge Hollywood apartment, which is, or house I should say, uh, which is on Sunset Boulevard, hence the name of the movie. And uh, he's a failed screenwriter or a struggling screenwriter. And she wants him to rewrite a movie of hers. And so he ends up living with her and staying with her. And the rest of the picture unfolds. And the final scene has the really famous quote, um, Right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And uh, as Luke said, a lot of uh, movies about creativity can be about the obsessional nature of this. And this is one of those. And that obsessional nature and where, where obsession meets with perfection and where it tips over into blind ego and madness is just a subject that I find fascinating. Because whenever uh, any of us that are dealing with our creativity, I, I always find it's a balance to check yourself that you're doing your best work, but not going into ego, not letting your ego drive it. Um, and I think, you know, some some people are better at checking that than others. But this is uh, just one of the most beautiful movies. There are also two film directors in it. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille plays himself. There's a cameo role from the great Buster Keaton and from Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper was the columnist at the time, the, the film reviewer of the day, and she could make and break a movie and had a reputation for being a, a quite a hard-ass. Uh, there's also... The butler is played by Eric von Stroheim, who was also a silent movie director, known for his... Um, he actually got banned as a silent movie director because his budgets always ran over. Um, he also once made a film that was originally 10 hours long, realising that that wouldn't sell. He then cut it down to six hours um, and uh, the studio was still unhappy. So one of the best producers of that era, Urban Thalberg, gave it to the then only female writer at the time, whose name escapes me. Um, But Hollywood's first, uh, she was the first executive at MGM, uh, and she cut it down to two hours. Eric von Stroheim was uh, very upset by this. The film was called Greed. You can see it, but it is a long watch. It has been restored with uh, still photographs, so it's it's just a classic of American cinema, and I think one of the you know one of the best movies of all time. I just love it.
0: Brilliantly captured, Suki. I'm going to ask: Is it something about the fact that it's Hollywood and and it's that world where uh, there was no bigger stars than Hollywood stars? Um, you know, and, and the, the the glamour of that. Or is it about the fact that it, it's, it's got a lot of people who are like washed up, who are looking back at, at successes that have failed them? Wh- which is it that drives you? And my, my, my question is, do you ever worry about a time when you will be uh, looking back, either of you, looking back at your work, rather than look at your past work, rather than looking forward to your next piece? Does that ever... Is the, does that nag at you? Does that ever worry you? Ty, can I bring you in with that question?
2: Of course. Do I ever look at back, back at my old work? Um, I'd say yeah, only the good ones, really. Um, I've been making films for 20 years as of, I think, last month. Um, so that's a lot of films to have been made. And I think sometimes you look back at stuff and you think, wow, I was really inventive. And like, I can't believe I came up with that really cool idea or that really cool visual and at the time, it's like, damn, like, that's really embarrassing. I can't believe I made this and then thought I could show people this, this piece of work, really. Um, but I always say that every shoot I ever do, I, is always uh, I, there's always a lesson I learned on that shoot that it would have been handy if I'd have known before, but I to wouldn't have known it because I had to go for the experience first.
0: And do you think your best work's always ahead of you? There's always, always. Like, something extra, something better that you, you 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 will find it. It's it's, you know, there, but not there yet.
2: Oh yeah, of course. I think um as creatives, you know, we, we're always developing no matter what stage in our career we are. We can have a really big concept or idea at one point, or have something more like simple another at another stage, but I always feel that um not only does it develop, not only does the technology develop as well, but like the world develops, um, I'm very much in the mind that what we sh- what we make is, it should be timeless, but it should also, you know, capture the zeitgeist what's happening now. So like, the, cause I write um, like comedy and the furthest I leave from there's like dramedy, you know, which is a mix of comedy and drama. I, I think that the things that I was writing say 10 years ago, wouldn't quite work, doesn't work quite as well as now because the world is a very different place. So um, looking back, yeah, see what I've done well, but also just, yeah, capture what it feels like to be alive now. So you've used the
0: word, the word, the world, the phrase, the world is a very different place. But you sound excited about that. But there's a line in that movie in which Gloria Swanson's character, she revisits a movie set and and she's not looking at the changes and embracing them she's looking back and i think the director says to her "Oh, you know movies are very different now and one of the features of her is that she can't move on she's stuck Mm -hmm. in the past and i was wondering suki is there a fear that we sometimes have that unlike ty that our best we had a golden period a golden moment one year five years 10 years 15 years ago and we're not looking forward want to recapture that and and that's that's part of the um, the nightmare that the Norma Desmond character is in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think, and I'm going to say everybody, although Ty has sort of already thrown my theory out of the, the water, and you can uh, disagree with me again, Ty. I think everybody that works as a creative, because our world isn't secure, we don't have um, a job where we can say, right, for the next five years I'm doing this – each time we get another job or do something else, it, it, it can end. So that sense of our world being skating on thin ice, I think, makes all of us a bit insecure. And whether we're looking back thinking that was our golden period or just that fear of this could end, will it continue? Will I get the next job? Will I you know, be able to progress? I, I think it makes everybody in our industry, a, you know, that's a, that's a constant. And for Norma Desmond, she's not working anymore. So mm. I think the reason why she's looking back is because she's now in stasis. She's living in this giant house that this massive career afforded her, doing nothing. She's, you know, she's isolated. She's in her own lockdown, if you will. So uh, whether or not when we all get to the point where we're no longer working, we all start looking back. But although, interestingly, if you uh, listen to interviews with Gloria Swanson, she wasn't somebody that looked back. She went on and had a business career afterwards. She set up a cosmetics line and she carried on working. She moved into doing bits of television and theatre. So she was very much uh, like you, forwards thinking, tried to stay with the zeitgeist, um, so, although she's playing a version of herself because she was that huge star, she, she wasn't actually like Norma Desmond in that respect.
0: There's a, a, a phrase used to describe her guests who come and play bridge. The waxworks. The waxworks. And they're all genuine former stars Buster yeah. Keaton, Anna Q. Nielsen. And they're described as the waxworks, and I guess it taps into that fear that one day, yes, we will have this body of work, but that's it. We will be, we'll, we'll, we'll be waxworks that people come and look at and remember, rather than living and part of, um, part of, uh, part of this world going forward. You know, Billy Wilder wasn't old, uh, and he had a fantastic career ahead of him, but he captures that fear of be of missing out and of. No longer being invited to the party, which is literally happens because Norma uh, Norma Desmond throws a New Year's Eve party with no guests. She has like butlers, fantastic spread. She has an orchestra and no guests. So there's that fear of no longer getting the invite to the party that's in there. I recommend the movie also, uh, just the sets. The the interiors yes. of this mansion. You talked about lockdown. It's extraordinary what she lives in, uh, but it's also like frozen in time.
1: Yeah, it's a bit Miss Havisham, isn't it?
0: It's great. Uh, it's The house is described as Miss Havisham in yes. the movie. Yeah. yeah, in the movie. That's, so that's quite interesting. S-
2: I,
1: yeah. I,
0: was,
2: I was thinking if you, if you never don't feel like you've made your greatest piece of work it or the, the greatest piece of work you have is like something like is always like in your mind like this is the thing I want to make I haven't got a chance to make it yet it's very much like the best hasn't happened yet whereas I think an interesting thing about very big especially comedy actors in film you have people like look at Eddie Murphy in the 80s like there was no one bigger than him yeah. uh, and then then after a while he just kind of seemed to the he stopped being as relevant. And he you know, his um, box office jaw became smaller and smaller, and people didn't see him that much. And you can say the same for a lot of um, big uh, comedy talent. And it's hard. I mean, obviously, Eddie Murphy's made a big comeback recently. But that thing's hard. Because I think yeah, in one sense, you do have to capture the guys But for some people, it's hard to still stay relevant, because an audience grows up, and then new people come interesting. And I think one filmmaker that's done very well to stay relevant is uh, Martin Scorsese.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
2: because uh so he made a certain type of film in in that era but he has instead of trying to make the same thing he tells he tells a lot of the same stories lots of tropes yes, but he's changed the way he tells them so he's Mm -hmm. managed to kind of um stay modern as things become as as the world changes whereas not every director can do that and also one person who isn't very well known uh with the mainstream is um a guy called hideo kojima he actually makes computer games uh, and you think, well, computer games, how could, computer games is art, and it's like playing a movie. And what he d- does is that he made computer games in the eighties up until present day. And again, he's managed to stay. I'd say he's the Martin Scorsese of the computer game world. He made this game series called Metal Gear Solid. It's fantastic, like it is. It is like playing a movie. And he also predicted what life would be like in 2014 back in 2004, which was <laughs> incredible. But yeah, he stayed relevant because he changed with the times, he didn't just keep doing his own stuff, he had his own kind of stamp, but again, he he was able to kind of, um, yeah, stay relevant.
0: That's an interesting phrase, he stayed, he, he, he moved with the times, but he still kept his stamp, I guess that's something that we might fear as artists, which is, I want to stay relevant, I want to keep in touch with the changes, and you're right, Scorsese made a film for Netflix, a streaming service, so that's you know, acknowledging things have changed. But you also you don't want to lose that essential you. And maybe that's that's something that some people are really good at.
1: I also think a, a difference between people who make their own work. So although Scorsese has to get funding to make his work, he, you know, he can present ideas. And we as comics make our own shows, you're making this podcast. But if you're an actress like Norma Desmond, You are only hired. You only get to go and audition and other people decide your fate, which I think is, you know, way harder.
2: Yeah, yeah. If you can't get the work, make your work. If you can't make your work, then you're kind of at the mercy of people giving you work.
1: Yeah. And how do you stay relevant then?
0: I think this is so different now because it's easier with the technology available to... to, make so you for instance ty you are producer director editor actor you've got the skills but you've also got the access i guess to the equipment yeah back in the day it would have been harder to be a you know to do all those different roles you're a Mm. bit more i guess more dependent on other people providing the things that you couldn't provide for yourself do you find that liberating or is the all that responsibility a bit scary ty
2: i think it's cool um I, because I, I know that with phone technology, there are people who will make uh, little comedy videos on their mobile phone. And uh, although I'd say, as because I've trained and spent so much time as a filmmaker, that's something I'm not really into doing because I'm very much into the production value, and I like, lo- and I also take myself seriously as a filmmaker. so When I make something, I want it to have the production value in it, which is why I don't do something very quick. However, that being said. I am a fan of uh, some people who literally will make like a uh, a comedy short on their phone with like bad audio quality. In fact, I was literally watching one this morning while eating breakfast because they're just really, really funny. Um, so I think that um, the access makes it easier for anyone to make anything and you can make, make something, you can make something, but you know, if you're somebody who is looking for say production values and, and by that, I mean, something that has, like, you know, television or, like, cinematic quality, then you are kind of – you still need to be able to pull those things together. I do have access to all those things, but I, I wouldn't just, like, throw it together. It always has to be, uh, you know, the best it can be, the best equipment we have access to, um, even though it's not as difficult now. I know as difficult now. Um, I think that, uh, for me personally, if it's got my name on it, if I've directed it, it has to look amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. hmm I um, I see Norma Desmond relaunching herself on TikTok huh. uh, had she had that um, <laughs> opportunity. And the next movie is uh, a dramatisation of a true story. It's The Jacksons, An American Dream. And it is, without giving anything away before Ty uh, introduces it, the story of the incredible uh Jackson family, focusing in the latter half of Michael Jackson, but I wouldn't say he was like the main character. So here's my—I uh, tell you what—there's uh, uh, a link to Sunset Boulevard, but I—I I, I'll wait to make that and I'll hand over to Ty. So you chose this film. Uh, I really enjoyed watching it. I hadn't seen it before, although I know the work. I mean, I grew up with the work. I'm I'm a probably a couple of years younger than Michael Jackson, and I had tickets to see him at the O2 mm. when he passed away. So uh, tell us a little bit about the movie, its approach, and why you chose it, Ty.
2: Cool. Well, uh, um, I think it's a surprising title to pick, considering you know all the vast like cinematic classics and great movies that have been made. It was a bit of a surprise to me, even, because like, uh, part of was like, oh, should I go with Mr. Holland's Opus? And There's so many films I could have picked. Even Wayne's World is brilliant, which is also based on the sketch. But when I came down to it, I thought, well, when it, the Jack, well, Jackson's An American Dream is an incredible personal movie to me for many, many, many reasons. Uh, so firstly, it's the story of, uh, I'd say, the Jacksons and the story of how they came together as a, a group and how they developed uh, their time going through Motown, performing in the 70s, Uh, It has lots of great music, lots of great dancing Mm. uh, and also focuses a bit on their family dynamic and also has um, Angela Bassett as Michael Jackson's mother. So it's, yeah, and it's a bit of a cheat because although it was uh, two movies in England, I think one was played on a Saturday, one was played on a Sunday. I used to have it on the VHS. In the States, it was actually a miniseries. So uh, the version that's online now has an extra, has a 35 minutes at the start, which is basically a prologue. Which follows um, Joe Jackson meeting, um, you know, his future wife, and then um, also has a bunch of uh, deleted scenes or extended scenes, uh, which was really interesting rewatching it. I actually
0: found that prologue quite in- interesting because one of the things that I pulled out of it was the drive, the obsessive drive that Joe Jackson has. Uh, he 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 he's going to make a success. Not personally, although he did he did start with his own dreams of I think professional baseball or maybe a, a a musician. Is that drive, which at times is kind of we worry about it, is it is that excessive? is the sacrifice he demands and the drive he puts in necessary to become truly great? Or was it necessary because this is a black family, a black working class family? in a racist and capitalist country. So to what extent is it the specific of the Jacksons or is it that anyone to chive, reach true greatness has got to cross that line? Um, because Joe Jackson does, as a father, I think, cross cross that line. And certainly, and, and, and his wife pulls him up on it. What do you think, Ty?
2: Um, I think it's interesting, really, because, OK, on... Well, the movie itself, which very clearly doesn't go into any of the element of the racism that would have been faced in that era, which is a its a white director, and it was in the 90s, so a lot of stuff tends to ignore anything that would make an audience feel uncomfortable. So, like, obviously, this isn't the truest story, because, obviously, Joe Jackson, who is oddly framed as kind of the main character, which is odd, because he's a, a world-famous child-beater. Um, and I think, obviously, they even, like didn't really go into how badly the children were like physically abused as well. So that's kind of seen as light and even in some ways can be played as kind of comical if you're referencing the thing that happened. But here's the the, the conflict really is that um, I actually have <laughs> odd like, um, like stand up material on that because so on one end, beating your children, you know, abusing them, it, it is a terrible thing, you know, and obviously the children are very, obviously emotionally scarred. Michael Jackson's very even more so than anyone else. If you think about having to perform, like just be beaten and go perform like in front of like an audience and the millions are watching, knowing that if you make a step wrong, you're going to get beaten again, but have to smile is, and then have to do that for what, how many decades is terrible. But at the same time, you can't argue with results. And that's the thing. Like it, what Joe Jackson did was horrible, but he did get results. And that's the kind of odd, like kind of conflict there is like, yeah, Joe Jackson is a monster. Maybe he shouldn't have done it. Well, he shouldn't have. But at the same time, you know, he beat his kids into success. So whatever he did do, it worked. It just also broke his children. So I think that would be a, well, Then more, if you were telling the story now, that would probably be the modern kind of telling of it, which would be, you know, um, which is the, the real repercussions of that is that, yeah, they're successful. And, you know, Michael Jackson became one of the greatest singers of all time, but was it really worth it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I found that really interesting. You look at um, stories coming out today about uh, um, star athletes, Olympic gold medal winners, and we know they've gone through physical pain, and and the coaches have crossed the line into bullying, or sometimes people do it to themselves. They will, uh, an, a, a sports person or an artist will put themselves through that grueling, physically uh, almost self-abusing process. To get to that true greatness, and so I think it's in there. You are right. I mean, it did feel like it was, it was, it was watered down to be acceptable, but it, it's still in there. One does notice, and you're thinking, was it worth it? Because what comes out at the other end was amazing, but the 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 suffering um, that's that it's taken to get there. And I was just wondering, is there any artist who can just breathe through life? and be truly, and we're not talking about good, we're talking about a genius, a legend level, without going through some kind of sacrifice where they either miss out on childhood or on family or or, or on other elements that ordinary people want in their lives? Big question I'm throwing at the two of you. I don't really have the answer.
1: Any thoughts, Suki? Well, I'll answer that. And then I want to go back to something uh, Ty said. I I think to be truly excellent at anything, there will always be sacrifices. But it doesn't have to be as cruel and mean as the Jackson household. You you know, Mm. I'd say it's arguable that had he have been that obsessive, but kindly, he still could have got the same results. I think to be excellent at anything, you've got to work seriously hard and be obsessive about it. But you don't have to be cruel and uh, beat your children. Um, and watching it, what struck me, which is sort of what you're saying, Ty, was what wasn't said. You know, yeah. if if that was the sanitized version, because it was based on the autobiography of. Catherine the wife Um, and it was also intriguing to me that by the end they had sort of justified Joe Jackson's behaviour it was also made in 1992 before all the allegations of sexual abuse were made against Michael Jackson so Mm. it's, it's it's both an intriguing story and I found slightly uncomfortable because of what's not said and that I think is almost like another character in it unintentionally and it's produced by Jermaine, isn't it? So yeah. it was a, yeah. a version of them that the family had clearly okayed. And so it kind of made me intrigued of what the real story, the real truth would be. Because if that's what they were allowing out about their father, who was still alive at the time, their mother was still alive at the time, it, you know, and obviously we, we've we heard the stories, but we could, they are not just of Michael Jackson, but of Joe Jackson, they are allegations. What was it really like? I, yeah. I was intrigued.
2: There's actually uh, a scene uh, in the, uh, the early part where they're performing and uh, Marlon, uh, that'd be the one up from Michael, they're, he, they're rehearsing and he falls over in the spin and yeah. he's taken to the next room. Mm-hmm. And like, he, he, he's, I mean, it could be the acting, but it's more like the directing of it. Like, yeah, he's getting like beat in the next room, but he doesn't. it's not like horrible crying it's more like oh he's just getting some light smacks and he's crying but i i thought well what if as a senior as an adult what if he was like screaming like really screaming like it would be horrifying and they kind of obviously because it's you know they're trying to keep this thing light and keep it enjoyable they you know they they make sure that was like oh it's not too bad he's just a beating but what if yeah it's like they do kind of really gloss over that um although i
1: Sorry, Ty. I did no, think no, no, no. the fact that every time he later in the film, every time when they he Joe Jackson walks in the studio, they all just go quiet, and I thought that was a really good chilling way to represent what this father figure meant to them all. He was. He was I actually, I felt figure.
0: that. Um, sorry, Suki. I cut over. I actually felt that even though uh it, that it didn't explicitly show what we suspect was the worst, it was hinted throughout. Yeah. that we could, we could imagine. I will, uh, so I'm going to mention something else. So, uh, okay, so Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, their dance sequences, even now, 70, 80 years later, are considered legendary. He choreographed those dances, Fred, and he would make Ginger Rogers rehearse and rehearse, and she would bleed into her shoes, and he would make her do another take and another take to reach the perfection that we watch on the screen. And we don't know this. So what what audiences, they don't want to know when they're watching it. We're analysing this. But when I listen to Michael Jackson or the Jacksons, I'm not thinking about the history behind it. Our audiences want to look at the work and they want to look at the artists. And and they kind of want to switch off the process that may have reached there. But here's, uh, on a slightly lighter note, one of the unfortunate, I think, um, Part of Michael Jackson's destiny was an inability to to have close human relations, you know, um, Mm -hmm. sort of functioning, nurturing close human relations, which is why he has a pet. And towards the end of the film, he has Bubbles, the chimpanzee, who who gives him some kind of solace. Now, people laugh at that, but actually pets are hugely important in British life. Uh, People visit hospitals with dogs to raise the morale of patients and so on. So there's something one gets from a pet, the unconditional love which is a a kind of fills a serious need at the beginning of sunset boulevard made i know 40 years earlier norma desmond has lying on 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 this massive table under a a sort of blanket her dead pet chimpanzee which she's going to have buried uh it's an extraordinary coincidence i didn't realize until i saw the films back to back but it's just showing she is unable to have this close intimate, uh, you know, expose your vulnerabilities, relationship with another human being. She has it with a pet. So that's just that weird link between the fictional life and the real life, but something that seems to capture the loneliness of of people who reach the top. Yeah, so my favourite year is the next movie. Now, this was made in the 80s, but set in 1954... Uh, interesting Suki so one of your films was made then the other one was set then uh it's set in the world of tv comedy but it's about a sort of Hollywood movie star so that's my uh thumbnail sketch of it how would you describe it Suki because you chose this one
1: yeah and you know I they popped into my head and they are both two of my uh favorite movies but they are kind of linked because again, it's about a faded movie star who is invited on to this comedy TV show. And it really is a Valentine to TV comedy. It's it's so affectionate and it's just so bloody funny as well. I just think it's a brilliant, brilliant comedy. And a lot of comedies don't stand the test of time. And even though it was made in the 80s, I think this one does stand the test of time. It stars Peter O'Toole playing um, an alcoholic, now slightly washed-up movie star going back to do TV. Um, And Mark Lynn Baker is the young writer who is given the job of trying to babysit him so that he turns up sober to do this TV show. Um, It was uh, written... By Norman. Oh, what's his surname? He has exactly the same Steinberg. Steinberg, no. yes. And uh, Mark Lynn Baker's is called Benji Stone, but his it, he he has changed his name, and his name was Steinberg. So Norman has actually used his own name, um, and it was uh, done by Mel Brooks's production company, and mm. I think is actually based on a true event of Mel Brooks trying to look after Errol Flynn back in the day when he was working, writing TV comedy. and it's set... Mel Brooks. Yeah, me too. I mean, The Producers was another one that popped into my head. Um, I was
2: thinking that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it.
1: It's a brilliant movie. Um, so, it, it, and I partly chose this because I think it would be less well-known and if people haven't seen it again, I just think it's an absolute treat of a movie, and uh, Peter O'Toole did all his own stunts, or apparently 95% of his own stunts, so you see him jumping onto horses and, and riding across bridges, you see him do brilliant pratfalls, you see him leap on tables and collapse, I mean, he's just, he's, I mean, he's just sensational in it. And, it, and it is, I just think it's a joyful, funny, just brilliant uh, movie, um, and it's set at 30 Rockefeller, where 30 Rock, it is still where a lot of TV comedy is written in, a, in the US today. NBC, they still have those studios. So mm. again, I suppose both movies are, are love letters to bygone eras of show business. And I just love the history of show business. So I guess that's another reason why they both hugely appeal to me. But it's, it's just a laugh out loud joy, because you rewatched it, didn't you, Luke? Did you enjoy it?
0: Yeah yeah I did enjoy it. Um, um I, you know I'm as a comedian well we three we all love comedy. Mm. So the setting which is a bit like Saturday night live now is um you know you're writing to the wire you you you're broadcasting live and the three of us do a lot of live comedy so we really kind of get it yeah. um, the thrill the uh, the danger the buzz mm-hmm. Uh, what happens in this version, though? Oh, this don't give the ender.
1: About. Don't give the end. I'm a big, yeah, no yeah. spoilers, no spoilers, Lukey. All I'm going to say <laughs> is
0: there is a, within it, there is a punch-up between the comedian who is satirising a gangster and the gangster's henchman. Yes. And the comedian is doing really well in that fight. Uh, and we know, as most comedians, if you've got comedian versus real gangster, I mean, yeah, you... you they wouldn't take the bets. They wouldn't <laughs> take the bets. I wondered whether, and I'm going to ask Ty this as well, because you do a lot Can of I satire. A
2: gangster in a fight?
0: No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that. Have you ever been in a gangster in a fight? It's part of this film, I thought, was the fantasy that if only, instead of just making fun of all the shit in the world, if we could actually change things, if I could actually throw a punch and knock out this person I've been lampooning because they're a giant asshole, uh, and because that's what happens in 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 the show, uh, in the movie. Because what we do, we poke fun at well, Donald Trump or whatever is poking fun at. but we don't really get to change anything. So I, I just thought, is is that one of the things that 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 draws us? Would you like to
2: be able to change the world, or do you prefer commenting on it, Ty? Uh, that I would say that is literally uh, the reason why I make films. Okay. Ah yeah um my my whole dream isn't like to be a big Hollywood like filmmaker or win an Oscar it's like just to change the world so my format is comedy so and I think that through uh satire you can definitely you know say things in different ways like uh South Park is one of like modern times greatest satires if you watch Modern South Park it's very very clever and uh, so the things I'd say yeah it's always an aim of like make people laugh but also change the way people think
0: i I think i I would love to. I've always wanted to, and I'm poking fun at stuff, and, and I'm politically active in a separate kind of world. But I wish, I wish the words I use would be enough for people to leave and kind of see the world differently, and then act differently. Um, but the, I think this movie plays with the fact that perhaps most of the time we don't. We 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 shine a light. And we use our talent to go, look at this, look at this. Maybe you haven't seen this before, but we don't actually get to, to change it. And one thing that happens in the movie is, of course, Alan Swan in the movies, he's a hero, sword fighter and so on. But in real life, he's a washed up drunk who just womanizes. But for a moment, if you could actually be in real life, the hero, is on the screen. And I wondered whether that appeals to
1: us yeah hugely the fact at the end he does become the hero for five Mm -hmm. minutes and becomes there's a a fantastic speech that Benji Stone makes where Alan Swan is saying I'm not that I'm not that and effectively is saying I'm a washed up drunk and you, you know you've you shouldn't believe it. And he's and Benji Stone, the young writer, says to him, but you are that to me, and that's important to me. That really meant something. I needed that in my life. And I think, you know, great films, great TV, great music, great comedy at times can touch us and inspire us. So uh, whilst I don't pretend that I or, uh, or art changes the world massively like a, a revolution can... I think it it does play a part. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's why it's relevant and that's why it's important.
0: I'm going to talk now about, uh, because we talked about, I think it's great that we face these big subjects, uh, we collectively, the world of art, our artists, creative people. I'm now going to talk about the personal life of the artist because one thing that uh, happens in the, my favourite year, and it's not giving away the ending, but, but Thank you. the actor, the actor has lost touch with his daughter. And earlier we talked about family and sacrifice. One of my favourite films about um, creative people is The Shining. Huh. Now, the, 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 there's two reasons. One is, for me, by far the scariest scene in it is when Shelley Duvall, who plays Wendy, um, the wife of, um, of Jack Nicholson's character, she has a look at the pages that he's been yes. typing. Because one of the reasons they're in the Overlook Hotel is, is he wants peace and quiet to write this, I can't remember, honestly, it's a novel or a screenplay, but tonight he, to write his great work. He wants peace and quiet. So we're in this hotel, out of season, loads of space, loads of quiet. She goes to see, and he's got hundreds of pages typed. And you and I know how exciting that would be to have hundreds of pages. We think, oh, I've got hundreds of pages, I can't believe it. And she picks up uh, the first page, and, and, and it has the line, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And then she realizes that this, this line is repeated all, all all along that page, the whole page. And then she goes through all the other pages and and every page just has that line repeated. In other words, he's obviously he's batshit crazy, but he's written, it's terrible. It's terrible, it's wasted. And every now and again, I my fear is I, I've got loads of pages and actually, they're rubbish, and that tapped into that. There's always <laughs> that <other laughs> <of those, laughs> "I just don't know." Sometimes I think this is great, and sometimes I just think, oh, "I've just reread it, and it's shit." And so that that tapped into something with me. Uh, do you remember that scene? Um, yeah, of it's you?
1: one of the best reveals in a in a movie ever. I think it's just so it, it, it's so scary when it happens. And um, the, obviously, the Outlook Hotel is so oversized. And Kubrick always used wide angle lenses, which makes the rooms seem even more giant and even more scary. And you have a close up of her reading it, and then a close up of the pages. And then he cuts to this massive wide angle uh, lens behind her. So she's leaning over the desk, flicking through the pages. And just in the corner, Jack Nicholson, who we now know is dangerously out of control in his uh, mental illness, his his back and shoulder, the back of his head and shoulder, just appear on the right-hand corner of the screen. And there's a, mm-hmm. you know, the music, obviously, is great music too. But it's one of the most chilling, most surprising. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful cinema.
2: Have you seen it, Ty? Of course. Yeah, um, yeah. I found it interesting, the parallels you uh, related um, it to for two reasons. Uh, first, yeah, it's the idea of looking at stuff I wrote a while back and being like, God, this is terrible. Well, the, every once in a while I look at something like, oh, it's an old draft. And I'm like, damn, you know what, I was in the zone when I was writing this, man. How do I get back in this zone? Or like, but right now I'm working on this new script. And I've had like two at it now uh, uh, recently well, over the past few months. And like the first draft was terrible second draft also terrible and then you gotta have the terrible draft to see what's wrong with it and now i'm at the stage where i'm like i have the pieces but then like like because nobody wants to do anything that's bad because it's like even though you learn from it it also kind of takes up your time so it's like mm-hmm. how do i make this next thing i do good and not be something i have to look at and be like nope this is what i want to make and then mm-hmm. uh start again yep yeah. yeah, i've been there yeah uh uh
0: so, the, so we can relate to that. Now, the second element I, is that this is about um, artists as selfish people because nah. you've got to be like devoted. Like he basically tries to kill his family, and it's almost like he's saying that
2: is so selfish.
0: It is a bit selfish, isn't it? But he's not saying if it wasn't for you guys, this would have been a better script. <laughs> basically, having a family is cramping my creative my creative style. I, I'm going to have to chase you with an axe. And uh, I was looking at... I didn't at...
2: even think about it that way. Wow. I never thought, never thought <laughs> well, about... Uh, no. Yeah. no. He's just gone mad. No, he just blames his family for he he can't write. So now he's going to have to kill them because that's the thing that's most important.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I can hear members of my family in the house. So they're probably thinking, oh, Luke's blaming us for every, every cul-de-sac in his career. It's because we were here. But I, I just wondered. You know, it's in there. It's in there. Uh, And maybe, you know, the artist who thinks, if it wasn't for all these other people who wanted, who were drawing on me, I could have concentrated, I could have been a genius. And so there was something about the selfishness in there of artists that attracted me. But I'll just mention my final film. And then I do want to come back to those thoughts you had, Ty. Oh, yeah. My final film is much gentler. It's A Mighty Wind. The mockumentary from Christopher Guest with all the kind of spinal tap repertory cast. It's a big reunion show of uh, uh, of bands uh, that were uh, really popular in the 60s. And now they're having a reunion after they've all retired, coming back together. And it reminded me of the fun I used to have in my improv companies. And then we'd tour. And uh, I don't uh, tour anymore with Spontaneous Combustion or with Theatre Sports. And it did remind me both of the fun that you have when you collaborate with others, that alchemy that makes things wonderful, but also the endless bitching and fighting and moaning, because that's in there too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you can't have one without the other, the film is sort of saying to me. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you, when it comes to collaborating with other creative people, is it the fact that if we're going to work with creative people, we, we can create magic, but we're also they're also going to piss us off sometimes. Is that like, I'm sorry, that's just, that's just in there. You can't get away with it. Or, uh, well, that's that's my question because uh, we've all collaborated with others. Um.
2: Um, I think collaborating works well if you have people who are good team players and have clear roles with, within. Um, so, like, say, for example, if it's for a, a film or something I'm working on, um, you might have someone who is like, the main writer or someone who's in charge of the story and so on, also kind of looks at it in terms of dialogue, in terms of, um, there's a, th- th- there has to be a point where like say the director is in charge of the creative flow of, of how it's going to work and, you know, the, in the end outcome. So, um, me, I'm, I'm a very collaborative person in terms of when I work with people, even if it's like, I don't know, if a runner comes and said, Oh, here's my idea. I'm not going to be like, you're a runner, I'm not going to listen. You know, there there was obviously times where it's like we don't have time to stop and can reconsider this, but other times it's like, well, you know, the idea aim is to make the best thing you can possibly make, not make the thing that's just in your head, um, and that's always so. It's always important to listen, but always important to trust trust your own judgment and hope you're not secretly an idiot.
0: <laughs> Suki, uh, what do you think? Collaborating?
1: I I mean, I love. Collaborating, but I agree with you. I mean, I think collaboration is like any relationship. You know, finding the right people to collaborate with is as hard as finding the the partner you want to live with or marry, in a way, because there's got to be the right chemistry there. But when there is, it's the most fantastic thing. And we are actually planning an impro tour at the moment, so we'll be on tour in the spring. And just having Zoom meetings about it, we're giddy with excitement to see (laughs) each other because it's, you know, it's so much fun. Um, And we will be doing that thing of traveling around on our tour bus all together and being crazy after shows. And yeah, it's the most joyful thing ever. So I think it's great. But also there will be moments when, well, I have to to say that show has very few uh, creative differences because I think with improv, when you're just going on and making it up, there's nothing to worry about until you've done mm-hmm. it, so that takes a lot of the, the stress and difficulty out of it. But when you're writing with other people, that yeah, you're always going to have to negotiate a little bit on what you think the the better idea is, and um, you know, if, especially if you're both trying to be equal partners in it, it's different. If like Ty said, you've got somebody that's a head writer, then they'll have the last say. Whereas if you're doing something with One other person, it's 50-50 or three, four people. and It's all equal. That's a a constant negotiation. But, yeah, that can be difficult. And that also can be part of the strength and the joy of it, I think. Mm.
0: I've got to say that I'm lucky, too, in that the people I've uh, collaborated with creatively, I, I like spending time with them as well. So I look forward to uh, these collaborations.
1: Yeah. I I can't imagine trying to collaborate with somebody you didn't want to spend time with. I mean, that would be a bottomless pit of hell, wouldn't it, if you were forced to... Oh, that happens.
2: You know that they get people together, like, hey, here you go, you two work together.
1: Yeah. Well, didn't Disney deliberately put people together who didn't get on, who had different views? Because he he had uh, a theory that people that were of different minds, that somehow that would pull the tent pegs more taut and make it a more interesting uh, project. So he used to look at who wasn't getting on in the office and the writing teams and then put them together.
2: Did they finish anything?
1: I, I, I don't know. Or did they um, come up with part of it and then hand it over? I, I don't know. But no, well, I... I
2: guess you have to have someone
0: in charge then. Yes. You, 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 you can play that game if ultimately one person is char- in charge and makes the, the, the decision. Yeah,
1: I yeah. I guess.
0: Yeah. Um, well, that's... So that's um, a mighty win, which I'm recommending. Any uh, ideas or stuff that um, you wanted to say from earlier, but you didn't get the chance because I, I had to gallop through the movie that we can um, bring back now?
2: Uh, I had one thing... Um... Something that you said about uh, Luke about um, about, yeah, people don't see the, all the bad things that lead up to someone, you know, being talented for being good, you know, people really, they just want to see the, they, they want to see the show. They want to see people dance. Cause one of the reasons why I love that film as well. And also why I love watching old videos of the Jackson five is I love their choreography. I love how yeah. tight they are. It's like they've rehearsed nice. the shit out of it. And there's like, it's not just like a little bit of dancing. There's a lot of dancing, like just, and Michael singing live and most of the time and like um, just not hitting a bum note, it looks like he's having the time of their life. It looks amazing. And that's an interesting thing because um, as a concept, because you know how modern times we now, uh, there's a lot of looking back at things and looking at the bad that was in it as well as the good. And it's the idea that that is a thing we have. We just want to, um, we just want to see people dance when that was a th- and there's even, there's been two instances. Uh, one that was very famous. And one not as much so one was this is america which um this is a song by um childish gambino which was like mm-hmm. it, it traveled like all across the world and like, it became huge and it was about yeah there's like horrible like violence against black people but people just really want to see black people perform and dance on screen so all the dance mm-hmm. was just a, uh, a distraction to like mm-hmm. um like gun violence and police brutality that was happening and he's basically dancing all around the front and behind and lots of bad things are happening and another one I only recently learned about, which is a, a really great song called "Hey Ya" by Out the Outcast.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. God! Everyone was singing that, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. It, was, it
2: was everywhere. It's like very old yeah. style, very dancey. But yeah. turns out the lyrics is about someone who's in a relationship and is very unhappy. And um, in even Andre three thousand, the singer in it, he's even saying in the song that but people don't care about that; they just want to see. They, they just want to see like the, the post pay, pay attention to the, the positive stuff or the fact that he even says in the, in the lyrics, you don't want to hear this shit. You just want to see me dance. And no, everyone misses it because it just sounds yeah. so good. It's like, yeah, you don't want to hear this. You just want to see me dance. And then he goes to the chorus and dances because, and people, cause he also, he was saying how people don't care about the lyrics. If the song sounds good and makes you want to dance, no one will care. And he made a song with very negative lyrics. And that and she says that it's, it's, it's really, really interesting.
0: Gosh, I never noticed that. And I've done a lot of uh, corporates, co- business conferences, and that would be like walk-in music. Yeah, because no one, no one's hearing it, including
2: me. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's interesting how we were conditioned. There was a time where people would listen to every lyric, and now it's not in the same way that, really, the Jackson Fire, the American Dream. It's just I, I learned all of the dance moves when I was younger. And that's one of the reasons why it's such an important film to me. It's just because like I was a huge Michael Jackson fan. I was like, huge so like, and I'd never been able to have access to the songs or seeing them when they were younger because you know the internet wasn't like you know yeah. not really a thing then. So for this, this was like this was incredible. It's like one of the most amazing thing. But also, what was I paying attention to? Just like the the, the dancing and the songs and how fun it must have been, you know. And, and and even making a joke about one of the quotes, which was Michael Marlon, you gotta get a beating. And me and my sister used to quote that and like yeah yeah, it's a joke, but probably in the one that actually happened in Royal real life, it was terrible and um, and traumatizing.
0: And uh, it's been fascinating talking about the movies, listening to where the movies have taken you, you know, in your thinking, and I've sort of jumped in myself. There's uh, obviously so much more to talk about the creative artist from the point of view of the artist and and at the end ty's been talking about what does the audience see the person you know the audience the listener the viewer and that we're almost in two different worlds we meet but our audiences will never really know what took us to the point where they meet us you know what i mean in public and perhaps we as artists uh, can work a little harder to empathize with who are the consumers of our art are too we haven't talked about them uh but we are them in a lot of places so we all love other people's work don't we so we 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 pop in and out of being an audience member to to being something someone who makes uh thank you very much uh for joining me and kind of sharing your ideas and mentioning your experiences and uh talking about movies ty campbell and suki webster thank you very much
1: thanks Luki.